so I want to begin today by asking you three questions which, listen to this, you can answer in your hearts, quietly in your hearts. All right, you ready for the three questions? Here they are, right here. Number one, do you believe this life is all there is? A plus. Oh my goodness. Last night, do you believe this life is all there is? No. They shouted it out. And then this morning, even more, no, they shouted it out. I did not hear one person shout it out. You guys are amazing at 11 a.m. Number two, are you fully satisfied in this fallen world? Answer in your hearts. I knew you had to be rebellious. You had to get in on it. It's just inside of you. That's the sin nature. All right. Number three, do you have a desire for something more? Yeah, yeah. All right, so if you answered no to number one, indicating you don't believe this life is all there is. If you answered no to number two, saying that you're not fully satisfied in this key phrase, fallen world, and if you answered yes, to number three, indicating you long for something more. I want you to know that you are not alone. There are millions of people all around the world that share the same sentiments that you do. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said this, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And so Lewis served as a professor, first at Oxford, later at Cambridge, for much of the 20th century, a great intellect. He went, by the way, in his life from atheism to theism, and eventually to Christianity. And uh, one of the most prolific Christian writers, um, probably in the last 2,000 years, he's up there. And Lewis, um, he realized that he was more than just a temporal being <clears throat> who was going to cease to exist someday. He actually understood that he was a spiritual being who was made for another world. Many of us which uh, share the same conclusions as C.S. Lewis about our own lives, that as Christians, listen to this, as born-again Christians, even though we have mortal bodies, right, that one day will expire, the real me, the real you, I'm talking about our immortal soul inside, guess what? That will go on and on and on forever. We were created as immortal beings. And the good news is this. One day, El Shaddai, you sang about him a little while ago. That means God Almighty. And by the way, the same God who spoke the space-time material universe into existence ex nihilo, out of nothing. And if he can do that, he can do anything. And so the God Almighty will one day, if you're a born-again believer, he will wrap your immortal soul with an immortal body and you will live forever in another world, in a new world, a brand new world. That's our longing. And that was the longing of Abraham, the one who, who's called the father of all who have genuine faith. Abraham knew he was made for another world. That's why the author of Hebrews said this. Quote, for Abraham was looking forward to the city, the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is who? God. I don't know if you knew, but God's into making cities. We're going to talk about one in, in particular 
uh, as the message um, unfolds today. And so Abraham, who lived in a tent, who was a sojourner, and he went from place to place to place, he desired something more. So what did he look forward to? Did he look forward to a big mansion on the Mediterranean Sea? No, 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 hardly. He looked for a city that has real foundations. He looked forward to the eternal, heavenly city whose designer and builder is God. Now here's the big question in this age of skepticism. The question is simply this, how in the world do we know such a city exists? And the answer is simple, because Jesus said it exists. And he knows a lot, of, a lot about this kind of stuff. I don't know about you, but anybody who predicts their death and resurrection, and then after they die, actually rise from the dead and are seen by over 500 eyewitnesses, I am going to give that person my full attention. Whatever he says, I'm listening with Dumbo ears. And I hope you will too. I hope this morning you will tune in to the words of Jesus as he talks about heaven. As I've already said, as we begin chapter 14 today, we are starting what's known as the Upper Room Discourse. It goes from chapters 14 all the way to chapter 17. A virtual sea of red letters, if you have the red letter edition of the New Testament. Red letters that are filled with what is regarded by many Christians as some of the most cherished statements that ever came out of the Lord's lips. And so we ended last week, chapter 13, with a bunch of discouraged disciples. It's very important to understand the context of where we are. Thursday evening before the crucifixion of the Christ, somewhere in an upper room in Jerusalem. Judas is gone. He went out into the night to betray the Lord. And so the 11 disciples are there and they're absolutely discouraged. The Lord had just announced to him that he was going away and that they could not follow him, at least not yet. And so the news of that departure hit them like a ton of bricks. Man, their hearts dropped, their faces dropped. Jesus could see that his 11 friends, right, are super discouraged. And so what does he wanna do? What do good friends do when their friends are discouraged? What do you do when your friend is discouraged? I hope you try to encourage them. I hope you try to comfort them. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. And so right now, if you're looking at chapter 14, verse one, can you say amen so I know you're there? Amen. Here we go. Let not 11 discouraged disciples in the upper room, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I love those four words. I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And so when his friends were discouraged, Jesus told them about heaven. Now, as we consider heaven today, the first question I wanna answer is, who are its occupants? And that comes from verse one. And by the way, chapter 13, which I'll show you in a moment, he says in verse one, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also 
in me. Who was Jesus talking to here? His disciples, right? And what was their spiritual status? Well, it's still Thursday night. It's still the same upper room. And so he had told them already in chapter 13 that they were spiritually cleansed, i.e., that they were saved. I want to take you back there really quick so you understand the context and the flow of chapter 13 into chapter 14 so that we understand the occupants of heaven. Okay, and so look at chapter 13, verse 10. What's going on here, if you missed last week, is that Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. He's being a servant. He's going around from disciple to disciple to disciple. He gets to Peter. Peter's like, you're never gonna wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. And then Peter being Peter, not my feet only, my hands and my head too. Now, if you're looking at verse 10, can you say amen here? Okay, get this. Jesus said to him, Peter, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Right, we talked about this. Peter had already taken a bath that day down at the river or the creek or whatever. And so he didn't need to wash again. He didn't need water poured all over his head and body and no, just your feet, Peter. So the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Your feet got dirty, walk into the upper room. Right, right, he is completely clean. Now what is this a metaphor for? It's a metaphor for spiritual cleansing. Okay, and so the one who has bathed, who is spiritually cleansed, saved, does not need to get saved again except for his feet. We talked about this, you just need to you know, keep close tabs with the Father. Confess your sins to the Father as a believer because you're completely clean, you're saved. And now look at the end of verse 10. And you, can, can you guys shout out the word you, please? Okay, he's not talking just to Peter there. The word is plural. You is plural there. In other words, Jesus was saying, and all y'all are clean. All y'all clean. But not every one of you. All right, so who was the one guy out of the 12 who was not spiritually cleansed, not saved? What's his name? Judas, right? And after Satan indwelled him, and then he went out into the night to betray the Lord, all that's left in the upper room is 11 true believers. Same night, same upper room discourse, you go from chapter 13 to chapter 14, and Jesus begins to give these guys a bunch of promises about heaven. All right, so I hope you're following along and I hope you're understanding um, what's going on here. But Jesus was talking in chapter 14, verse one, to the spiritually cleansed, saved children of God. And that leads you to your first Q&A today, if you're taking notes, regarding heaven. Question, who are the occupants? Answer, the children of God. Now please do not buy in to the lie that everybody's a child of God. I, under the fact, I understand the fact that everybody's been created by God. Psalm 139, he knits us together in our mother's wombs. I get that, but that doesn't mean that everybody's a child of God. That's why Jesus said in John 3, you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of heaven. So the only ones who are children of God are people who are born again. 
Okay, so so, so, so important that you understand uh, what I'm saying here. How do people become spiritually cleansed? How do they become children of God? Well, John already told us way back in chapter one. Check it out. We'll look at it again. He, Jesus, came unto his own, Israel, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, go ahead and finish it out, children of God. All right, so how do people become spiritually cleansed? How do people become the children of God? He said it right there in verse 12, all right? So second line down, and I want you to look uh, all the way to the word but in the middle of the second line. So here's John chapter one, verse 12. But to all who did, and I want you to shout out the next word there. Receive. receive. But to all who did receive him, who, and please shout out the next word, believed. Received, believed in his name. He gave the right to become the children of God. All right, so how do people become spiritually cleansed? How do they become born again? How do they become children of God? Here's how. By receiving Jesus, which is synonymous with believing in his name. The word believe there, if you're taking notes, simply means to trust, to rely upon. And so unlike Judas, the unsaved guy, who went out into the night to betray the Lord, these other 11 guys in the upper room, they had actually put their personal trust in Jesus Christ. And when they did, whatever that was, he spiritually cleansed them and they became the children of God. Okay, so here's the, here's the question and answer. Who are the occupants of heaven? It's anybody who receives Christ Jesus as the Savior and Lord of their lives. It's synonymous with believing, with personal Trust, I cannot emphasize that enough because some people give intellectual assent to a bunch of facts, right? But it's never personal and they're not saved. This was my wife, she'll tell you to your face. She grew up in a home that um, recognized intellectually Christianity kind of, sorta. Never went to church really except for Christmas and Easter. And so she gave intellectual assent that there's a guy named Jesus and he died for the sins of the world. But guess what, even though she gave intellectual assent to that, she was not born again. She was not spiritually cleansed. She was not a child of God. It wasn't until she personally received Jesus Christ as her personal savior and the Lord of her life, that's when she became born again. That's when she entered into a relationship with God and she became a child of God. Have you received Christ as your personal savior and Lord? That is the million dollar question. Salvation is a free gift, Jesus paid it all, but you gotta receive the gift. And so have you put your trust in Jesus? I wanna talk a lot more about that at the end of the message, but look at verse one again. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. Now the word believe there is a verb, and it's in a, the imperfect tense. So what's he saying? What he's saying is, hey, 11 disciples in the upper room who are already believers, 
who are already saved, who are already spiritually cleansed, hey, I want you guys to continue to believe. I want you to continue to believe in the Father. I want you to continue to believe in me, the Son. And so what, what Jesus is saying to the disciples here is, hey guys, I know that you're sad that I'm leaving, but don't let your hearts be troubled. Keep believing in God the Father and keep believing in me, his one and only son. So it's continual. Now, everybody rejoices, right? The angels rejoice. That's what Luke says. Whenever someone um, turns to Christ in repentance and faith, they become born again. Guess what? The angels are rejoicing in heaven. We rejoice as well. But ladies and gentlemen, how many of you guys know that getting saved is just the beginning? Now you got a whole life in front of you. A life that's filled with ups and downs. A life that's filled with good times and bad times. So it is absolutely imperative that you and I continue to trust the Father and the Son. And by the way, that is the remedy for a troubled heart. Did you see it in verse one? Let not your hearts be troubled. Okay, what should I do, Lord? Keep believing. <laughs> keep believing in the Father and keep believing in me, his son. Later in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus is gonna tell his disciples this. He's gonna say, same night, same Thursday night, same discourse, the helper, some of your translations say comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then, listen, 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 as a result of the coming of the comforter, Jesus went on to say in the very next verse, please shout out the first word, go ahead. Peace. There's your remedy for a troubled heart. His name is the Holy Spirit. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let, he says it again, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Some of you have troubled hearts this morning. There's something going on in your life and it's threatening to shake your faith. Maybe there's a loved one who's making really bad choices and you know they're on the wrong path but they won't listen to you. Maybe you have unsaved neighbors or loved ones or friends or family members. Maybe there's something going on at work. Maybe there's something going on in a friendship. Uh, maybe there's just something going on. It's getting real dark, a sickness, a disease, whatever it may be. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening right now, please say amen here. Listen, don't doubt in the dark what you've believed in the light. I heard it just last night, another mom came to me. Her son raised in a Christian home, raised in a Christian school. Now they're an adult. They're doubting whether or not Christianity is true. Please, don't doubt in the dark what you believed in the light. Because here's what I know, we all live in a fallen world and this fallen world will beat the snot out of us. And I wanna encourage you, don't allow other people's bad decisions to dominate you with discouragement. I understand our hearts break, but the Lord, how many of you guys know the Lord doesn't want us walking around like this all the time? Mm, how you doing? Mm, hey, no. 
Okay, don't let this other person's bad choices, yeah, your heart breaks for them, but don't let them control you in that way, have power over you in that way, where now your demeanor is all discouraged all the time. Listen, they're making their choices, okay. You can make your choice to honor and serve the Lord. And how many of you guys know that the Lord gives joy unspeakable and full of glory in the midst of the valley? And so I'm not trying to be a motivational speaker here, I'm just telling you the truth. After every valley, there's always a mountaintop. And so look for it. Trust the Lord to keep his promise and keep trusting in God the Father. Keep trusting in God the Son and just when you need it, he knows when you need it, just when you need it, God the Spirit will come and he'll give you that peace that surpasses all understanding. One God, eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all working together for your good and for their glory. But here's what I wanna encourage you to do. Listen, because some of you are allowing discouragement and even depression to come over you wave after wave after wave and it's starting to affect your demeanor. Don't do that. Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Stop looking at your past, stop looking at your present. Start looking to the future because God's got an amazing future for you. Take him at his word. Keep believing. As we consider heaven today, the second question I wanna answer is what is it like? Well, look at verse two. Chapter 14, verse two, he says, in my father's house. I love how personal that feels. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go and prepare a place for you. And so Jesus described heaven as the Father's house. And here's what I know. Where there's a father, there's kids. Okay, and so the second Q&A today, if you're taking notes regarding heaven, question, what is it like? Answer, it's a home for God's kids. And so the, the word, at least in the ESV, uh, for rooms is actually in the Greek, dwelling places. And so the idea here is that in the Father's house, there are many dwelling places. There are, there's tons of rooms, and there's also a ton of room for God's kids to enjoy. When I was studying this week, a song came up in my mind, and I thought, man, that's a blast from the past. And I, I Googled it, and it was actually released in 1993. Does anybody remember Audio Adrenaline? It's a big, big house. <laughs> with lots and lots of room, a big, big table, with lots and lots of food, a big, big yard where we can play football. You say, there's no football in heaven. I hope there is. It's gonna be amazing. It's my father's house, and it's gonna be absolutely awesome. You say, how do you know it's gonna be awesome? Here's how I know. Because Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. And here's what I know. Jesus spent most of his time on this earth as a carpenter, so he knows what he's doing when he's preparing that place for you. He knows you, he knows your likes, he knows your dislikes, and he's actually, listen, 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 I am not talking about pie in the sky, by and by fairy tales today. I am speaking on the authority of God's word, and God cannot lie. And Jesus is there right now, and he's baking a place for you. So it's okay to get excited about it. It breaks my heart when conservative Christians get more excited about a midterm or the presidential election than they do about heaven and their father's house. It's time to check our hearts and it's time for us to, to be able to 
focus on King Jesus and what he's doing for us right now and have grateful hearts. And so it's gonna be absolutely awesome because he's the carpenter. I'm not a carpenter, I'm not a handyman. I can hang a picture with a single nail, but if it requires something that's weighty and an anchor, I'm telling you, I'll make a big mess of it and a hole this big in the wall becomes a hole this big in the wall. So I hire everything out and I've seen some amazing carpenters come in my house and do some amazing things and I was like, man, that is crazy. This guy's by himself. He's slinging up that crown molding like it's nothing, right? And it's perfect. This is so cool. But, but then you think this. Jesus is the greatest carpenter there ever was or ever could be. What does that mean? That means that his abode he's making for you is gonna be absolutely beautiful because you're God's kids through faith in Jesus Christ. Now in order to get a glimpse of how beautiful this is gonna be, hold your place in Revelation 21, uh, uh, John 14, and turn on over to Revelation 21. We're gonna get a glimpse of glory here, a glimpse of the Father's house. So the same guy who wrote John is the same guy who wrote the last book in your Bibles, and then he described the city of God in the last two chapters of the Bible. And so chapter 21.1, if you're looking at it, say amen here. John says, from the island of Patmos, somewhere around 90 AD, we think, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Everybody look at me real quick. Does anybody know how this current heaven and earth is gonna pass away? Fire, absolutely. That's 2 Peter 3.12, if you wanna write that down in your margin. Fire, there's gonna be a universal fire. You say, am I gonna burn up? Not if you're born again. There, the Bible talks about three heavens. There's the first heaven, second heaven, third heaven. First heaven is earth's atmosphere. Second heaven is space. The third heaven is the abode of God. God is spaceless, timeless, immaterial. He's infinite, he's amazing. So what is he gonna do? He's going to take us into that third heaven at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ after the final rebellion of Satan. Sometime around the great white throne judgment and what is he gonna do? He's gonna wipe all this out with a great fire and then he's gonna make a new heaven and he's gonna make a new earth. But it's gonna get even better in verse two. He said, I saw the holy city, get this, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And so this new Jerusalem, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Father's house. This is the place where Jesus is right now making a room, a dwelling place for you. And one day, praise God, it's gonna come down out of the third heaven, the abode of God, down to, not this current earth, this is after the millennium, this is gonna happen on the new heavens and the new earth. It's gonna come down like a bride adorned for her husband. I still remember that day in my life when I stood at an altar and I looked down and I saw my bride, Stacy, coming to me. It was absolutely amazing. And so there I was, June 1989, 
33 and a half years ago, and I'm standing there, right, sporting my little mustache, by the way, did you see that? And I'm looking there, and there she is with her grandpa, and she's coming down the aisle adorned for her husband. And as her and I stood on the platform that day, I, I, all I can say is that was a happy day. Well, guess what? Someday when the city of God comes down from heaven to the new earth, does anybody think that's gonna be a happy day for the people of God? That city of God adorned like a bride for her husband. Do you know what was the best part of Stacy coming to me on that significant day? It was the fact that we could start living together as husband and wife for the rest of our lives. What's gonna be the best part of heaven? The city of God coming down, right, to the earth. What's gonna be the best part? The best part is gonna be the fact that we are gonna be able to live with Christ for all eternity. It's gonna be amazing. The best part of heaven is not the city um, of, of the, the, the city like a jasper. It's not gonna be the pearly gates. It's not gonna be the streets of gold. All those things are amazing, but that's not the best part of heaven. The best part of heaven, ladies and gentlemen, is this, that we are gonna be able to dwell with God. God's very presence will be with us. Theologians call this the beatific vision, that we're actually gonna be able to stand there and see God Almighty face to face. And ladies and gentlemen, that will forever fill that void that we talked about earlier in the message. God's a God of grace. He's got an amazing future for us. John goes on in verse four there, and he says that God's gonna wipe away every tear from our eyes. There's gonna be no more death or sorrow or pain. You know why? Because we're gonna have immortal bodies. Immortal bodies, we can't get sick. We cannot die. That means there's no more need for doctors. There's no more need for medications. There's no more need for hospitals. There's no more need for rehab centers. There's no more need for funeral homes in the new heavens and the new earth. You and I, if you're born again, we're gonna be powerful. We're gonna be stunning. We're gonna be super intelligent beings, and my favorite part is, did you know this? We're gonna be impeccable. Impeccability is a theological term, meaning that we cannot sin. Cannot, can you imagine a world, a universe with no sin? And so you've heard me talk about it a thousand times, right? We're justified through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and then we're saved, at that point, we're saved from the penalty of sin, we're saved. And then throughout our whole life, we're being saved from the power of sin as we become more and more like Jesus Christ, right? And then what happens in the end, glorification, we're saved from the very presence of sin, impeccability, worshiping the Lord. And so it's gonna be an amazing time. We're gonna be stunning, the city's gonna be stunning as well. It says in verse 11 that the radiance of the city will be like a most rare jewel, like a jasper. And it says in verse 21 that the streets will be pure gold like transparent glass. What really blew me away is I was reminding myself of all this stuff because I taught through Revelation, I think it was 30 messages about five years ago, and all the messages are online, is the measurements of this city. Okay, so look at 
Look at verse 15. It says in verse 15, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. Okay, so because the length, width, and height of the city are equal lengths, the New Jerusalem, the city of God, will either be in the shape of a cube or it'll be the shape of a pyramid. Four sides on the bottom going up. That could be how it is, like a pyramid, or it could be just like a cube. And, and when you think about this, what is a stadia? Well, 12,000 stadia, if you do the math, and some of your modern-day translations did the math for you, but the city... <clears throat> will be about approximately 1,400 miles long by 1,400 miles wide by 1,400 miles high. All right, so how does that compare with the United States of America? Well, approximately like that. Now, I am not saying the New Jerusalem's coming to America at all, okay? I'm just trying to give you a sense of the approximate perimeters, right, um, in a map that you're familiar with. It's gonna be, I mean, how many tens of thousands of cities are within that square? But yet the city of God, that's just one city. In his book, Heaven, I don't know if you read it. It'll take you about a year, it's really thick. Heaven by Randy Alcorn. He said, and I quote, we don't need to worry that heaven will be crowded. The ground level, speaking about the ground level of the New Jerusalem, will be nearly two million square miles. Two million square miles. That's just the ground level. The city goes up another 1,400 miles. The International Space Station is only about 250 miles above the Earth. We're talking about over five times higher than that. It's been estimated that there could be 600 thousand floors to the city. How long would that take in an elevator? Can you imagine walking up to on the ground level in the New Jerusalem? You're in ground one. I need to go to 600,000 floor. And then Elf comes in and he does this. <laughs> and then you're just like this, right? What am I saying? What I'm saying is the New Jerusalem is absolutely massive. Turn back to John 14 as we continue to think about heaven today. The third and final question that I wanna answer is, how are we gonna get there? Now of course, when you die, absent from the body, present with the Lord. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. And so how are we gonna get there? Look at, look at what he says in verse three. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. He's talking to a bunch of Galileans. They know exactly what he's talking about. We not, not, not so much so. All right, so I'll explain it, but as we consider heaven today, the third and final question is simply this, Q&A, Regarding heaven, question, how will believers get there? Answer is the rapture of the church. It's one of my favorite subjects. 
All right, so in ancient Galilean culture, when a man and woman were betrothed, kind of like our engagement, but way more of a commitment when there was a betrothal. When a man and woman were betrothed to be married, the groom had up to a year or so, the period of the betrothal, to add a section to his father's house where he and his bride would live after the marriage ceremony. Can I just pause right there for just a moment, and I hope you're listening, and I hope you just caught it, but they wouldn't live together until after the marriage ceremony. Why is it so quiet in here right now? I'll tell you why it's quiet, because our culture laughs at that concept. But ladies and gentlemen, it's in the Word of God. It's in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament, it's all over the place. God created sex, does everybody agree he's a great creator? He created sex for the marriage covenant between a man and a woman alone. And any kind of sexual activity outside of that marriage covenant is a sin against a holy God who made you in your mama's womb. And he gets to be the boss. It's when a person becomes a rebel and says, I don't care what he says in his Bible. I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do. Well, guess what? You're being a a rebel against your creator and your king. And what that's showing by your attitude is you're not saved. Now, only God knows the heart. But when someone is rebellious like that and they continue to be rebellious like that without any repentance, 1 John, you read through the whole uh, letter that John wrote, It seems like the guy's not saved or the girl's not saved. I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do. Do you you guys understand that heaven is a kingdom and Jesus is king, he's the Lord. Does anybody think kings allow rebels, unrepentant rebels into their kingdom? And so what does it say in Hebrews chapter 13, verse four? If you're listening, say amen here. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge. That is a promise from the holy God. God will judge the sexually immoral, King James Version, fornicators and the adulteress. And so if someone is engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage with no repentance at all, then you gotta wonder because of that fruit Is this person even ever been born again? Because here's what I know. When you're born again, the spirit of God comes inside of you. And he's called not the perverse spirit. He's called the Holy Spirit. And he lives inside of us. So we have a desire to do what is holy. And so my encouragement is this. Keep sex for the marriage bed. One man, one woman, that's where it belongs. Nowhere nowhere else. You say, but the culture. Who cares what the culture says? The culture's on the way to hell, okay? And so don't listen to them, listen to God. Listen to his word. This is what children of God do. And right now, if you're beating yourself up, looking back at your past and saying, well, I messed that up. Well, good news, God's a God of grace. He loves you, he'll forgive you like that by the blood of Jesus. You make a commitment that I'm gonna live holy for the rest of my life. Listen, I know we're in the the minority. Who cares? Truth is truth, whether you're in the majority or the minority. And so please make that commitment to be holy. If that pornography is tempting you, nip it in the bud while it's in the head. Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Just say no. Ask the Holy Spirit of God for supernatural power to say no to that garbage. 
If anybody is tempting you outside of the marriage, dip it in the bud, in the head. Do not go down that road. Because listen, whether you have sex before you're married or whether you have sex with somebody else other than your spouse after you're married, here's what I know. It doesn't just hurt you. By the way, Hollywood is a lie. The fact that you can, on, on, on the TV screen, have sex with whoever you want and then be healthy, wealthy, famous, or whatever. Listen, where's the heartache? Where's the judgment? It's not there because Hollywood is not real. The reality is this, that if somebody makes a choice to do this outside of marriage, then what happens is they don't just hurt themselves. Hear me, they hurt the circle of loved ones around them. How many kids have bawled their eyes out because mommy and daddy decided to get a divorce because mommy or daddy decided to have an affair and the kids are crushed? Hear me, please, I don't care if we're in the minority, but live a life of holiness and purity before God and God will not judge you, God will bless you and he'll bless the people in your circle as well. That's what we're longing for, that's what we want. I guess that's, preaching because none of that was in my notes except for Hebrews 13:4. Okay. So back to the notes, back to the teaching. A groom in the ancient Galilean culture had up to a year or so to add a section on to his father's house. And then guess what? After the betrothal period was completed, the groom came for his bride. Listen to this. At an unannounced time From what I understand, in the middle of the night, the only one who knew the day or the hour was the daddy. And he would come and he would take her to his father's house. So what's the imagery here? The imagery is that the groom is Jesus Christ. He said, I'm going to the father's house. I'm gonna add a section on for you, born again Christians. And then I am going to come back. No one knows the day or the hour. And I'm going to take you to myself because you're my bride. Who's the bride? The church. By the way, you don't go to church. You are the church. Ecclesia, the called out ones. It's born again believers. And he's gonna come. We don't know when and we need to be ready. What's it gonna look like? Pardon me if I get really excited here. Eschatology is one of my favorite topics. We're done in John. Please turn now to our last passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter four. 1 Thessalonians chapter four. As you're turning to 1 Thessalonians four, by the way, I just gotta share with you that most of Christendom does not believe what I'm teaching. Welcome to an evangelical Bible-believing church because we teach what God's word says. So what's it gonna look like? First Thessalonians 4, verse 13, if you're looking at it, say amen. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writes, we do not want you, Christians in Thessalonica, to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those Christians who have died that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Okay, so the lost guy who loses his lost wife has no hope. That's a lot of grief. That's not us. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so 
through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. These are departed Christians. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. You see that? So, so important you see that. We declare, Paul says, to you, church family, by a word from the Lord. This is God's word that we're reading right here. That we who are alive. Did you notice that Paul thought what we call the rapture would happen in his lifetime? We who are alive. He looked forward to it because no one knows the day or the hour. And I believe every generation of Christians has to live with this expectancy that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ, those departed Christians, by the way, absent from the body means to be present with who? The Lord, you take your last breath, your spirit goes immediately to be with Christ, okay, so we're talking about them. And the dead in Christ will rise first. But what about Christians who are alive? Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. I just wanna remind you that this is a, verse 15, word from the Lord, so it will happen. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so one day, the father is gonna look at his son, and he's gonna say, son, go get your bride. It's the day, <laughs> and it's the hour. And there's gonna be a shout. And he's gonna go down, he's coming back. He said, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. And as he's going down, guess what? All those departed Christians, they're coming with him. He's gonna put the brakes on at the clouds, they're going down all the way to the earth. Where exactly are they going? To wherever their remains are. Could be a casket, could be an urn, wherever it is. Listen, the same God who can speak an entire space-time material universe into existence, ex nihilo, he doesn't need much to work with, okay? And so I don't care if someone's been dead for 1,980 years and whatever's left, God's got it, God can do it. And so that spirit is gonna reunite with those remains, whatever that looks like, and all of a sudden, the dead in Christ will rise first. That's gonna be amazing, it's called the resurrection. They go up to the clouds where Jesus is waiting and then something super exciting happens to those who are alive and remain. What's that? Look again at verse 17. He says in verse 17, then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. All right, and so the Greek word for caught up is harpazo, it means to seize, to carry off by force, to snatch away. Our English term rapture comes from the Latin term rapio, and if you define rapio, what is it? It means a snatching away in ecstasy. Snatching away. So imagine you're at work. <laughs> imagine if you're at your favorite restaurant. Imagine if you're a pilot flying on a plane and suddenly, Bam, you are snatched away. I would ask you, is that gonna be exciting? You may say, it depends on where I'm going, right? I'm gonna be snatched away. Well, 
on the authority of God's word, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to meet him in the air. And when that happens, you are gonna be changed and you are gonna be like him. When he shall appear, we shall be like him. Now, if you're at work, your lost coworkers are gonna freak out because you're there and then you're not there. If you're at your favorite restaurant, and this happens when you're at your favorite restaurant before you eat, hey, you may miss a great meal, but there's no better meal than the marriage supper of the lamb that God's gonna have for us. And if you're a pilot and you're flying in a plane, I just feel really bad for all the people. Unless your co-pilot's an unbeliever, and then he can land the plane. But what am I saying? What I'm saying is this. In all seriousness, what I'm saying is this. On the authority of God's word, there is a generation of Christians who will not die. They will be taken up by the Lord, and nobody knows the day or the hour, so it could be us. Now, I want you to understand that the rapture and the second coming are two different events. Okay, when I was around 20 years old in Bible college, I had to learn what's called eschatology. I had no idea what, esca what? Well, eschatology simply means the study of end times. And I had to read a book this thick called Things to Come by Dr. Dwight Pentecost. He was, he's now in heaven, he was um, a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Here's what I love about the book. It started with hermeneutics. Oh, please get this. What is hermeneutics? It's how to properly interpret the Bible. You know why some people have different views on eschatology? It's because they're, not, they're using the allegorical method of interpreting the Bible. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. Even if you don't understand what I'm saying right now, the same people that interpret the verses for Jesus' first coming with the literal, grammatical, historical proper interpretation, all of a sudden switch it up for all the revelation the second coming with an allegorical method. That's messed up. And so I read that entire book cover to cover, and I read all the different eschatological positions about the rapture, the millennium, et cetera, et cetera, and from that day until now, I am definitely what's called a pre-trib rapturist and a pre-millennial evangelical Christian. So what do I believe? I believe with all my heart the Bible teaches that the rapture occurs before the seven-year tribulation. We're snatched out. The second coming after the tribulation. The rapture is imminent. There's no signs needed. It could happen in five seconds. It could happen in 50 years. There's no signs needed. How many of you guys know Dr. David Jeremiah? A few of you. I highly recommend him. Amazing Bible teacher. But that one, I've been a little bit rusty on teaching end times because I think it's been five years since I taught Revelation. So I went back and made sure with one of the guys I look up to who's been doing this a lot longer than me, it's eminent. There's no signs necessary. The second coming is not eminent. There's many signs necessary. Ladies and gentlemen, God forbid, if you're not born again and you're in the tribulation period, when you see that world leader go to the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and set up the abomination of desolation and declare that he's God, you can mark it down on your watch, three and a half years, Jesus is coming back. That's a sign. That's called the second coming. No signs for the rapture. The rapture, Christ will come for his bride in the clouds. The second coming, Christ will come with us 
to the earth, all the way down to the Mount of Olives, and there'll be a great earthquake. And then finally, at the rapture, he's gonna come as a groom. Did you notice there's no judgment in 1 Thessalonians 4? It's all happy times, why? Because we're his bride. Happy times for the bride. He's gonna come as a groom to save the church from the wrath of God. Listen, 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 listen. Why does the bride not get the wrath of God? Because Jesus took the wrath of God in our place. He absorbed it. The righteous judgment of God, he absorbed it for us. We do not get wrath, we get salvation. And so the second coming, totally different thing. Seven years later, he comes as a warrior to save Israel, the remnant of Israel. Romans says all Israel will be saved, that remnant. And he's gonna save them from the wrath of the Antichrist as the nations of the world converge. Now, I'm out of time. But if this interests you and you wanna learn more about the rapture, I think you already know what I'm gonna say. Gotquestions.org. Article after article after article, you can read all about it, you can see what it says biblically. And so I encourage you with these final words from the lips of Jesus. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also, Jesus said, in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'd go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where you are, I'm sorry, where I am, <laughs> there you may be also. And all God's people said, <laughs>